Welcome, dumbheads, to MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. In this season, I'm identifying the dumbest thing on every single goddamn page in a trio of adventure modules for TSR's Marvel Super Heroes RPG, starting with Adventure MT1, All This and World War II. Every episode is one page, every episode is short. All This and World War II was written by Ray Winninger and published in 1989 by TSR. Today we're discussing page 41 of All This and World War II. Today begins a new chapter of our adventure. Over the past few days, we've discussed what happened when half of our heroes went to find the secret weapon from the future in Hitler's bunker. It was not there. So, wasted trip. Nothing useful to the war effort in that bunker except for, you know, Hitler himself, cosmic-powered knockout gas, magical Nazi diamond steel, a tremendous amount of explosives, high-tech holographic disguise bracelets, and a working time machine. Oh, and a pocket-sized mind control cube. But who cares about that? Throw it in the room with everything else and blow it up, insist the invaders. Anyway, today we begin chapter 18, colon, into Romania, where the other half of our heroes, in a mashup squad consisting of half player character heroes and half invaders, go to Castle Vladistopol, which we, the readers, now know is the location of the super weapon from the future that our heroes are looking for. We begin this leg of the adventure with some read-aloud text. Quote, from Crane's book, you have no problem figuring out the position of Castle Vladistopol. In order to get into Romania, the U.S. Army has placed you aboard a small bomber which penetrates German air cover and lands at a secret airstrip located deep within Romania that is held by an allied resistance group, a mere 10 miles away from the castle. By the time you touch ground, it is almost 9 p.m. So no parachutes in this mission. The plane just lands, you walk out, and you are greeted by a small group of partisans who give you directions on how to get to the castle from the airstrip, but won't do anything else useful for you and don't know any other useful information, except that, quote, the castle is the only Nazi base within approximately 50 miles. There's actually an illustration on this page of our heroes talking to the partisans. I'm not sure why this was chosen, perhaps because nothing interesting happens on this page, but this is not an interesting scene. This is not an interesting event. And I really appreciate that it is depicted in a true-to-life fashion with what player characters would be doing during this dull exposition conversation with the partisans. We see the mountains and the plain in the background, and then closer to our viewpoint, uh, we see a crowd of the partisans. They don't even have faces. They're just kind of shadowed out. They don't matter. It's just a nameless group of people here to provide information. In front of them is Hawkeye, who is talking to them. He's holding out his hand. Clearly, the role player of the group is playing Hawkeye. He's engaging in this conversation, as is usually the case in conversations and role-playing games, one player character acts as the face and voice of the group, and the rest of the player characters just kind of awkwardly huddle behind them. And that's exactly what's happening here. There is like a semicircle of superheroes just standing behind Hawkeye. They're in the foreground, and they are not engaging the partisans. They're too busy with their own bullshit, which, again, extremely true to life. In any player character group, there's like one person who likes to engage the outside world in a sort of plot-oriented, explore-the-fiction kind of way. Usually everybody else is too rowdy to even get outside the social sphere of the group. Like in this picture, we've got Union Jack squinting over at the partisans like he's ready to jump in and fight at any moment. Clearly, this is the player who likes combat. Then we've got Vision and Namor just looking at each other, looking none too friendly. It's not going to come to blows, I think, between these two. But you can see that they're wrapped up in intra-party shenanigans. Based on my experience of player character social dynamics, I think this is probably a case of one slightly dickish player playing the I demand to be respected player character. This is a character who's an aristocrat like Namor, or they're rich or whatever. It's a character who expects to be deferred to, 
And that way the player gets to get off on demanding respect from the other player characters and various NPCs. And then I think player B here, playing Vision, is no selling player A's thing because player B's character is too special to buy into it. Like, this is what happens when, you know, player A wants to play a scary character and player B is like, well, because my guy is so special, he's not scared of you. Or player A is like, I am playing a renowned character whom everyone respects. And player B is like, well, my guy is too special to respect you. My guy is too special for this. My guy is too special for that. In this case, my guy is too special to care about you being the Prince of Atlantis. Maybe. If you even are Prince of Atlantis right now, this changes on a weekly basis throughout your comic book career. So these two are having an uneasy interaction. Over on the far right in the foreground, we have Tigra. She's looking at Namor with a look that I initially could not place because her lips are a little bit pursed. Her eyelids are a little bit narrowed. And that could be, I'm a fight that fish man if I have to, if he makes me. Not sure yet, but I don't like the cut of his jib. Or it could be, I, like all right-thinking cat girls, am super hot for Namor. But then I realized it doesn't have to be one or the other. I think both of those are, are totally normal, rational responses to Namor. Totally reasonable things in character for Tigra to feel. And I think that I want to fight that person and I want to fuck that person. Probably make up two-thirds of the top three interpersonal dynamics in a player character group. So Tigra, the look on her face is a bit mysterious. But she's definitely thinking about leaping onto Namor's body and having a really good time. And then, of course, like android father, like son, Toro is here, paying no attention to anything, blazing away at a secret airstrip in a conversation with secret partisans 10 miles from a tall castle housing a secure Nazi base. You've always got that one player character who is so into their own deal that they simply will not engage the fictional world around them. Whoever's playing Toro just wants to be on fire. Some people love to play the fire guy. This person loves to play the fire guy. Some people love to play the elf. Some people love to play the bruiser or the dwarf. Some people love to play the ninja. Some people like to play the tech expert. Whatever their thing is, though, that's all they're interested in. You may have a woman at the table who just wants to play computer girl. Every time she walks into a scene, she's scanning the room. Are there any computers here? No? Well, I'll stand here and think about computers until I see one. Okay, great. Nice contribution, computer girl. So anyway, other than this unusually honest illustration, there's nothing really interesting happening in the conversation with the partisans. They just tell you to move on down the road. And so, move on down the road you do. Assuming that you're using the road, not flying or teleporting or whatever, you then hear a vehicle. Quote, the road is lined by a thick forest, so most heroes can easily hide if they so desire. No feet necessary. So it's up to you. Do you want to engage this vehicle or not? Do you want to just hide and watch? It turns out to be a German army truck, and if you let it get 100 yards past you, then it will pull over, and the four people inside will come out and take some readings from a weather station. This is where the boring exposition talk with the partisans pays off, supposedly. Quote, If the heroes spoke to the resistance fighters they met at the airstrip earlier and learned that there are no other nearby Nazi bases, they should realize that the truck must have come from and must be returning to the castle. In this case, they might decide to capture the Nazis, take their uniforms, and try to enter the castle in their stead. So this is another one of those pet ideas of the author... It's like a fun thing that could happen. This one I personally find more uh, plausible and interesting than Operation Sea Shanty, and also less high stakes than the idea of pretending to be a loyal Nazi to fake out Red Skull. This is just a fun thing that could happen. Seems like a natural idea that would occur to a wide variety of player characters. So good for the author here. And this, in fact, is the branch on this page. Uh, there's a note here to use the typical Nazi soldier stats for each of the four weather checkers from the truck. Uh, it also says the heroes will automatically gain a free round due to surprise in that combat. So this this combat is a cakewalk. It's a non-factor. Basically, if you want to jump them, beat them up, and take their Nazi outfits, then you can do so. 
Incidentally, it says here that if you interrogate them, uh, they know about the layout of Castle Vladistopol, and they can answer some questions about the Nazis who are stationed there, but they don't know anything about the super weapon. So fair enough. The author is doing great on this page. You can interrogate the captives for useful information, but not information that destroys a whole branch of the adventure. That's really it for this page. The aftermath section says that if the heroes decide to dress up as Nazis and take the truck back to the base, they go to chapter 20. Otherwise, they go to chapter 19. And there are karma rewards too, but they're even more perfunctory than usual. You get five karma for speaking to the partisans, which I remind you happens before you really get control of your characters. This is like cutscene territory. You come out of the plane and there the partisans are. Unless you all form a phalanx and just like march directly through them without speaking to Castle Vladistopol, you're going to get those five karma. And you get 10 karma for defeating the Nazis in the truck, but you also get 10 karma for ignoring the truck. So you can't duck these 10 karma. They're coming at you. Although now that I think about it, no, that's not true. If you engaged the Nazis and lost, then you would gain no karma. And that's never really going to happen, but I guess it could happen. Like if rules were really bad, like maybe a couple of heroes got shot and there were like kill results and they're lying there bleeding out and it was only a three person group. Then you might have Scarlet Witch there with like two people bleeding out and she needs to help them. And she might decide, I, I care about these two people's lives more than I care about denying the Nazis these vital weather readings. So I'm going to let them get back in their truck and get out of here. But if you really get wrecked that badly by the four Nazis who read the meter at the weather station, I think it's fair to stiff you on karma. You deserve it. And clearly the universe does not favor your endeavors. So yeah, there's, there's not very much to talk about on this page. So I'm going to quickly pick out one little note just because it led to me learning something interesting that brought a critique of this adventure to mind, a critique that doesn't particularly apply to any one page. In the section where the author talks about dressing up as Nazis and driving back to the Nazi base for that plan, that branch, it says, quote, the GM should bear in mind, and yes, in this sentence, the author does forget this game uses the word judge and says GM instead. I've never felt this close to Ray Winninger. Uh, quote, the GM should bear in mind how difficult this might be for any women or bizarre looking heroes. So that's just a little note that not everybody can pose as a Nazi soldier. That seems pretty reasonable. I mean, of the West Coast Avengers, assuming Moon Knight is willing to take off his mask and show everybody his face, which I don't know how loosey-goosey Moon Knight is about his secret identity, I feel like maybe he's one of those guys who's real weird about it, and he's wearing a hood and a full-face mask, seems insecure. But assuming that Moon Knight is willing to take off his mask, the West Coast Avengers has like three people on it who could maybe pose as a German soldier, uh, Wonder Man, Hawkeye, and Moon Knight. Wonder Man's eyes look all weird. They're all glowy because he's made of ionic energy. And <laughs> now that I think about it, that's a big deal. Like he can't really drive into the Nazi base just wearing a German army outfit and sunglasses. Being the one Nazi soldier in sunglasses at 9 p.m. might make you stand out. But yeah, the other three members of the West Coast Avengers definitely couldn't do it because Wanda's a woman, Tigra is a woman and a tiger, and Vision is a hairless red-skinned android. Considering that, I actually thought at first, maybe this is an important note because it might be easily that you're in a group where nobody can pose as a German soldier, so you might not have this route through the adventure available to you. It might actually make a difference who you decided to bring to Romania, as opposed to going to Hitler's bunker. Um, as it turns out, it doesn't really because of the invaders' demographics. Ironically, for the Allies' number one World War II superhero team, almost everybody on the invaders could pass for a German soldier. Like, I'm not saying they're Aryans, but they're Aryan-esque. We've got two very blonde white guys in Captain America and Human Torch, a white presenting Atlantean in Namor. He's not a perfect fit for the Nazi ideal, having the pointed ears, but he could probably hide them under a hat. So he can pass. And then there's Brian Fallsworth, who's a white guy with brown hair. The only two invaders who might not be able to pass for German army soldiers are Toro and Bucky on account of their age. 
But if you assume, as I do, that Bucky is actually a lot older than he's billed, which fits a later retcon that, like, the Young Allies stories in the Golden Age were in-universe retellings of his early adventures and that he was actually older than he was portrayed in the comics of that time, um, if you accept that, then uh, maybe Bucky could pass for a soldier. You know, if he's an old-looking 16, he could pass for, like, a young-looking 18- or 19-year-old German soldier. And, you know, actually, I just Googled Toro's exact age live on mic, and it turns out that he's, like, 19 in this story, which tells me, number one, he is his own man and has no excuse for being fully ablaze out here in the airstrip. And number two, uh, sure, he could pass for a German army soldier. So yeah, like five to six of the six invaders can easily pass. And only one person on the team needs to. Anybody else on this mashup squad can hide in the back of the truck. So due to pretty much every invader coincidentally looking like the Nazi ideal of manhood, there shouldn't really be any teams that would play through this module that wouldn't be able to try to sneak into the castle with the truck. The superheroes who are androids or women or tigers will just have to hide in the back of the truck. That brings me to the dumbest thing on this page, which happens to come up on this page, but it is really a dumb thing about the overall decision-making about this book. There are almost no women in this book, and it really doesn't need to be that way. And the invaders are a good case in point. There is a female invader. Her name is Spitfire. Spitfire was established to be a member of the invaders at some point, certainly by the time this adventure came out. And even by 1989, when this adventure came out, it was, I would say, fairly clear that she was on the Invaders roster in 1943, and she would fit in wonderfully to this adventure. Her real name is Jacqueline Fallsworth. She is the sister of Brian Fallsworth, aka Union Jack, and her origin story is that she was bitten by Baron Blood, who, no spoilers, but he may appear in or around the Romanian castle we are about to visit. Uh, she was bitten by Baron Blood, and then she got a blood transfusion from the Human Torch. And the transfusion gave her super speed powers, which she then used to save the Human Torch's life. And that's how she came to know the invaders. So this is fantastic. We got super speed powers, which are not represented anywhere else on either the West Coast Avengers or the invaders. She's Union Jack's sister. She got her powers from Human Torch. She's got a grudge against Baron Blood. So you really could not ask for more in a female invader. And I don't think that this module would have suffered from leaving out Toro, who has functionally the same powers as Human Torch, just a little bit weaker. If somebody really wanted to run him, you could just use the Human Torch's stats, but just give them a one or two column shift penalty to everything they do. <laughs> it's like, it turns out that being Toro, you can basically treat as a status ailment. But anyway, dumbest thing in this page, dumbest thing in this book, there are virtually no female characters. I don't think we get any women other than Scarlet Witch and Tigra anywhere in this book, I think. Like, all the soldiers are male, all, you know, all the NPCs are male, everybody at Not Quite Shield is male. There might be a few cases where it's not specified, and the GM can go out of their way to insert some very minor female characters. But yeah, other than that, this book is like a cache of German field rations, a real sausage fest. Anyway, despite the fact that any player character group is going to be able to dress up as Nazis and sneak into the base that way, some groups will ignore the Nazi weather squad and just go directly up to the Nazi castle in full superhero regalia on fire where applicable. Join me tomorrow to see what becomes of hero teams who take that approach on MDC, the Mega Dumbcast. This has been MDC. New episodes drop every day except for Sundays, when all the previous week's episodes drop in one big megasode on the top-secret patrons-only RSS feed. If you'd like to get access to that feed and support the show, go to patreon.com slash megadumbcast. Contact the show however you want. I am Megadumbcast on Twitter, Podbean, Gmail, Instagram, etc., etc. This episode's theme music is Robinson's Grand Entry March, performed by the United States Air Force Concert Band. Thanks for listening.